All right. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Alan. If this is your first time here or you're newer to the group, I am one of the pastors at Lighthouse. I oversee the young adult ministry praxis, which is our ministry uh, for young adults from 20 or post-college until 30. And this is the first praxis of the year. We've been on break for about three weeks. So not to get too emotional, but I kind of missed you guys. Um, so it's good to be back. It's good to gather as a fellowship and to encourage one another to sit under God's word and to examine what he has in store for us. And I'm particularly excited tonight because we're going to be kicking off a new sermon series, as you can tell from the banner, on the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books of the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. And the book is rather unique if you've read it. It's not like many others. Um, as a fellowship group, we just finished Romans, and that was an epistle, right? It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Well, Ecclesiastes is in the genre of what we call wisdom literature. And it's grouped with other wisdom books. You have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. A total of five, at least, in the Old Testament. And yet, even within this group, Ecclesiastes is the oddball of the bunch. Because typically, when we think of wisdom, what book do we think of? Proverbs, right? Unless you're trying to be different and cool. But people love the Proverbs. They love these pithy sayings, these maxims that we can live our lives by. We probably memorized a lot of them, like Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or you have famous ones like Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And this type of wisdom is so memorable so practical, truths that we can take to the bank until we can't. Sure, generally speaking, proverbs ring true, but they're not always foolproof. A soft answer isn't guaranteed to turn away wrath. Our friend might still be mad at us. I mean, beauty seems pretty important to people dating or in pursuit, while fearing the Lord, we know doesn't always welcome praise. You see, wisdom often, it often pays off, but it's not a perfect formula. It's not as simplistic as I do what is right, I obey the Bible, and my life will be smooth sailings. My life will be golden and good. Enter Ecclesiastes. So where Proverbs is idealistic, it's, it's normally the way life works and should work, Ecclesiastes deals with the exceptions in life. It tackles the problems, the tensions we see and we know about. And we experience this on a daily basis even. That the good guys don't always win, that the bad guys don't always pay for their crimes. There's injustice surrounding us. There's randomness in the world, seemingly chaos. Everyone is afflicted with struggles, with suffering. And Ecclesiastes doesn't deny this. It addresses it head on. It takes time to ask the deeper questions that plague all of us. Life, as you know, is complicated. 
Life can be so cruel and unfair, right? What is it all for? How do we make sense of it? What does it all mean? And that's precisely why we need to study Ecclesiastes, to take a sober, unflinching look. And this is especially pertinent, relevant for our fellowship group, for Praxis, because the majority of us in this room are young, successful, and ambitious, or we want to be. We are the demographic that is most vulnerable to being overly optimistic, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. With diploma in hand and paycheck in the other, we're ready to go out and get ours, right? To conquer the world, to stamp our name in it. Now, we might be in different stations of this, You know, some of us are just getting started. We're sending out applications for grad school or we're toughing it out at our first job. We're at the bottom, but we hope to hustle all the way up to the top. Others of you are more established. Maybe things are going well for you, really well. You know, your life is a nonstop highlight reel. You got your big promotion, you're living lavishly, you're maxing out your 401k. We've all got big dreams and lofty goals. And I don't mean to rain on your parade, But before we get ahead of ourselves, Ecclesiastes will pump the brakes and provide a dose of reality. You've heard of this trend of people deconstructing their faith. Ecclesiastes shoots higher. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to deconstruct life. And in my opinion, it is the most honest and human book of the Bible. Ecclesiastes invites us to leave no stone unturned in our quest for purpose, in our attempt to justify our reason for existence. And it will be particularly difficult to digest because we might not like what the book uncovers, what it reveals. Ecclesiastes will force us to be real with reality. Now, if that doesn't make you eager to study this book, I'm sorry, too bad, we're gonna do it anyways. But I do trust while it may be unpleasant, even painful at times, it will be profitable. So buckle up, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Ecclesiastes chapter one. If you need help locating where it is, you could essentially just crack your Bible straight down the middle and you should land there. It's right after Proverbs. So I'll go ahead and read our text for us and then we'll pray for the Lord's help. Ecclesiastes chapter one, follow along as I read verses one to 11. This is the word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. For what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full 
of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already, and in the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. God, at first read, it seems like such a downer, but we know that you are bulldozing our hearts so that you may rebuild us up, so that we see the folly of chasing after the wind and pursuing things that will not last, that our attention would be given to you. And so use this word to devastate us, to cause us to be desperate that we look to you. Use your word to stretch and challenge us that we might then prize Christ and the gift he is and how he changes everything in our lives. Use this word now. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll break down our passage tonight into three main sections. Three main sections. And the first is this, the preacher, the preacher. Look again at verse one. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So here we're introduced to the author, or as he calls himself, the preacher, which is gangster, right? I mean, it'd be like if I said, don't call me Alan, call me the preacher. This is legit, but there's good reason for it. Now, the Hebrew word for preacher is koheleth, koheleth. And it refers to someone who has a collection of saints, someone who has gathered a speech for a gathering. In fact, that's where we get the strange title for the book, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is basically the Greek equivalent for Koheleth. So you might be familiar with ekklesia, the, the Greek word for church, for congregation. In a lot of ways then, Ecclesiastes is to be received like a sermon. Not merely a book we dissect and analyze, not a data dump, but more like a provoking message that we fully engage and we're immersed in the experience. Traditionally, most have understood the preacher to be none other than Solomon. And yet, if you read on, you won't find him explicitly using his name. But as you continue in Ecclesiastes, a lot of details and references kind of sync up with Solomon's life. For example, in chapter two, the preacher talks about his vast riches, how he has multiple houses he built, gardens and parks he owns, numerous concubines. He discusses how he possesses unparalleled wisdom surpassing everyone else. And it sounds familiar, like snippets from Solomon's life. And if we're still unsure, unconvinced, well, Ecclesiastes 1.1 is pretty close to how the book of Proverbs opens. Proverbs 1.1, uh, the prologue is this, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the preacher, son of David, king of Israel. And why does this all matter? Because what's shared 
What's disclosed in this book are not theoretical musings of an armchair theologian. These are the words from the wisest person ever who had unbridled access to all that this world has to offer. So you and I would do well to pay attention to what he says. I mean, it's one thing if I tell you, right? If I tell you money isn't everything, you would just blow me off, right? Easy for you to say because you don't have any. You know, you're a pastor. The P in pastor stands for poor. It's uncalled for. But Solomon is not like me. He has the resume to back it all up. He's experienced everything only to come out on the other side empty. You see, what's worse than having none of your dreams come true is having them all come true and still be left wanting. Why does the preacher remain anonymous? Well, we can't know for sure. I think it's because Solomon knew how he blew it. He messed up big time. Solomon was the wisest person, but he was also the wisest fool, squandering all of his advantages and opportunities only to fall on his face and forsake God. And he doesn't want to stumble his audience. He doesn't want to stumble us like a disqualified pastor would. I do think Ecclesiastes is Solomon's repentance letter. It's him at the end of his life, reflecting, penning a memoir of his regrets so that we might learn not to make the same mistakes. He hides himself under the moniker of preacher because he doesn't want to distract us. The focus is not necessarily on who he is, but what he says, his message is what matters. And in verse two, the preacher opens his mouth to deliver his sermon. So we move from the preacher to our next point, the proposition, the proposition. Look again at verse two. He declares, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. How's that for a sermon? This is his main point, his thesis, the text of his exposition, if you will. Everything in Ecclesiastes is an expanding, an unpacking of this central argument, this proposition. And notice the preacher uses the word vanity five times in this tiny verse here, and almost 40 times in the book. It is paramount then that we understand what vanity means. And today we usually associate the word with being prideful, right? Someone who is self-absorbed or constantly checking their appearance in the mirror and we might say, he or she is so vain. But back then the word literally means breath, mist, vapor. It's a vivid word picture, right? Just think of the steam off of your coffee cup or soap bubble or the smoke you puff after lighting up. Just kidding. I was to see if you were paying attention, <laughs> if you're a Christian too. But this is a word picture, a metaphor, vapor. 
And it's fitting because it illustrates a few qualities about life. First, first, it paints for us the fleeting nature of life itself. You know, you have a pretty soap bubble, but it's here for a split second and then it pops, it's gone, it vanishes. It may fascinate us with swirling colors, but is there anything more fragile? And life is exactly like that, is it not? It's here today, gone tomorrow. Accidents happen and a parent has to bury their child. Loved ones suddenly die without the chance for a proper goodbye to be exchanged. You know this. You might have experienced it yourself. And we don't even have to talk about death, but just how quickly life seems to pass us by. You know, yesterday, you were an innocent kid without a care in the world, and you blink. You're already in your 20s and trying to navigate through this daunting world on your own. You blink again, and sad to say, you'll be as old as me. And I know that's scary stuff, horrifying, true nightmare, but it's gonna happen. And all this communicates to us, it impresses upon us our inevitable end, that you and I will die one day. We're gonna die. We know this, but can I ask, do you really believe it? That you could die even tonight? I hope it doesn't happen, but there is a danger in dismissing this possibility. I think we're so accustomed to think, well, not me, you know? That's everyone else out there. They all be the statistic, but I'm special. That you'll live to your 70s, maybe, but maybe not. And if that's the average age, life expectancy, then you have a 50-50 shot. But it's not promised to you. Life is fleeting. And because it is fleeting, because it's fickle, it's also incredibly frustrating. You know, think about a vapor again. You can't, you can't capture some smoke and then tuck it into your back pocket only to pull it out later on. You can't hold on to vapor and shape it according to your liking, at least not for very long. No, it eludes you, it escapes you, it slips right through your fingers. And we need this kind of corrective. Life is not some RPG video game where you can just level up your character, beat the final boss, and live happily ever after. You and I cannot game the system. We can't even leverage wisdom to guarantee the ending we want. Yes, be frugal with your money, but realize the market can take, or your savings could be wiped out because your car is busted. You can invest so much in a friendship only for that person to uproot themselves and relocate to another country. You can be so diligent about exercising, eating right, only for an MRI to reveal a growing tumor. Now, of course, be careful, be smart and strategic. That's better than being dumb. But true foolishness is not realizing nothing's promised because life is unpredictable. 
It can't be fully comprehended or controlled. It's enigmatic and elusive, like trying to grasp, trying to hold on to vapor. It's futile, futility. The last facet we see from this word vanity. If you're using the NIV, they've translated vanity as meaningless. And that's partially true. I get what they're trying to do, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Certainly meaning exists. Otherwise, the very statement is kind of a contradiction, right? Otherwise, the preacher wouldn't even bother exhorting, speaking to his audience. There's meaning in life, but we have to keep it in perspective. A vapor is very real, but it is not very substantial or significant. You see the distinction there? It's not that there's no meaning in life. What bothers the preacher is that it doesn't last. He's conveying the superficiality of life. Sure, there's value in who we are, what we do, what we experience, but measured, spread across eternity, doesn't really matter. And the preacher doubles down on his proposition by doubling up his words. He cries out twice, vanity of vanities. And in the Bible, this is how you punctuate something. Not with an exclamation point, but through repetition. You've seen this. You know, the holy of holies is that secret section in the temple reserved for the high priest to commune with holy God. Or we often call Jesus what? The king of kings and the Lord of lords to crown him as matchless, as unrivaled. Well, here the preacher is redundant for the sake of emphasis. Vanity of vanities, to intensify it. All is vanity. Just for kicks, he throws in the word all to leave nothing out of the equation. And again, I think we understand this conceptually with our heads, but we need to feel this viscerally with our hearts. Imagine if you approach me with things that have been occupying your thoughts, stressing you out or consuming your time. And you said, you know, Pastor Allen, I'm sorry for calling you poor earlier, but I really need some advice. You know, I'm entertaining switching careers, but it's going to set me back a few years. I think it's the right thing to do, but if I head down this road, I'm going to have to move. I won't be able to be part of this church and I worry about finding community again, let alone uh, someone to date. What should I do? And after patiently listening to you, what if I responded with, who cares? Vanity of vanities. Your life is fleeting and frivolous anyways. You'd probably be mad. I'd probably be the worst pastor in the world. But this is the preacher's response. And it's worth considering his words, whether we like them or not. He's bruising us. As my friend said, the truth hurts, but living a lie is a million times worse. The preacher's not trying to be insensitive. He's just being brutally honest, following the proposition down to its logical conclusion. Look at verse three. 
What does man gain? So if life is vain, if it's vanity of vanities, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Gain is this commercial term used often in business. And the idea is surplus and profit. What do you get as a result for all that you put in? What trophy or reward do you have to show for all of your time and effort here on earth? And this doesn't necessarily have to be something tangible and concrete like real estate or bullions of gold. It could be a reputation. It could be leaving a legacy or raising a family. It could be wanting to feel like you contributed to society and did meaningful work. But the preacher asks a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. The answer is obvious and it's too harsh to articulate. Nothing, nothing, because you're gonna die and you can't take anything with you into your casket, anything that will benefit you. I think more people are beginning to realize this, right? They're having this epiphany, this existential crisis. A Gen Z has often been labeled and mis, uh, caricatured as a bunch of lazy complainers who don't work. Not the Gen Zers here, you know, just outside of our church, uh, but that's not super accurate. Now I'm coming to your defense as a boomer. Uh, this week I was watching um, a Gen Zer there's this TikTok floating around and she was clarifying uh, the situation. She was sharing how she works her tail off just to barely scrape by. All her wages are used on basic necessities like rent, water, electricity, and food. And she can't even fathom the idea, the concept of having to support a family or buying a home in the future. The game is rigged. You see, her problem wasn't that she had to work hard. It's that working hard wasn't enough. And maybe that resonates with you because you, that's your life. You're there in the trenches and you are torn up inside because what is the point of slaving away for 40, 50, 60 hours a week only to spend your Saturdays and Sundays sleeping and recuperating just to do it all over again come Monday. What's the benefit? What do you gain from studying so hard, getting so many degrees only to rack up a huge debt that you'll never recover from? And this is heavy, right? Disheartening truth. The preacher, uh, he likely wouldn't be our close buddy here. He wouldn't be on your invite list for your birthday party because he'd just tell you it's meaningless and that you're gonna die. But he's honest. And to back up the proposition, the preacher then moves to presenting the proof, the proof, our third and last point. He takes us to exhibit A. He has us look at the proof outside of us the proof outside of us. And it gets poetic on us in verse four. It says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. When I was reading this in my preparation, I thought to myself, this is exactly how I describe praxis. 
that a generation of you ages out of praxis only to be backfilled by another younger group where as I am stuck here and I just get gray and old. But that's what the preacher is trying to communicate. That through the years, decades, and centuries, the world, for the most part, remains set in its ways, a permanent fixture. There's rhythm, but it's a monotonous one, an ebb and flow that is constant, which is, if you really pause to think about it, rather maddening. It'll drive you insane. Look at verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You've seen those motivational pictures with uh, inspirational quotes, right? It's usually featuring something from nature like a portrait of the redwoods or the, the majestic Grand Canyon with a caption like endurance, stand strong, stand firm, and last forever, right? Well, the preacher here, he's showcasing portraits from nature, not to inspire us, but so that we're pushed to despair. It's crazy, right? He says, look at the sun. Look at what it does. It rises and it sets. It doesn't call in sick or ever take a day off. It just does the same thing over and over again. You know what we call this? Boring, boring. In fact, if you're using the ESV, there's a little footnote for hastens. And we track it down and it tells us that the sun returns panting. So picture that. Even the beaming sun is exhausted, slumping back to bed, if you will, only to have to get up and do it all over again. The other elements don't fare any better. The wind blows north and south, spinning around with no end in sight. So much noise, so much movement, but I've never heard a weatherman say, and that's the last of it, the final gust of wind. No, it, goes, it just continues. And here with the waters, it's no different. The streams keep pumping and pouring into the sea, but the ocean doesn't fill up. It doesn't overflow because it's reached max capacity. No, there's evaporation, condensation, precipitation, and the cycle repeats itself. The wind and the sea make a lot of commotion, but like the sun, they return to the start. Beloved, the repeat button is smashed in. Nature's unbreakable cycle is meant to be a mirror then for our own. We've got the same things. We got the daily grind of a nine to five. If you work in healthcare, a patient discharge only means you're gonna see whoever's next on the list. We got an endless pile of dishes and laundry. One chore just leads to another. I mean, I don't want to think about all the time I have spent sitting in traffic, vacuuming the house or answering emails, all this activity going on, but what does it ever really accomplish? It never stops. You get what the preacher is trying to do? He's putting us on this global merry-go-round and spinning us around and around with the sun, wind, and sea until we're dizzy until we're on the verge of vomiting. Because here's the irony. 
verse eight, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. So even though the sun never reaches its destination, the wind never ceases, the sea is never completely filled, you know what the world is full of? Weariness. As Paul says in Romans, everything in creation is subjected to futility. The same word for vanity. Creation groans because it's cursed. And the preacher not only provides proof by having us look to the nature, look outside of us, he has us inspect what's going on inside of us, the proof inside of us. He continues in verse eight, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. The preacher's asking, when was the last time you finished a TV series or a movie and said, all right, that's, that's the one. You turn it off, I'm done forever. I'm good for life. Or when did you hear the latest hit on the radio and think to yourself, I am fine never listening to another song again. My ear is happy. No, there's always room for more. Our appetite is insatiable. Another show to binge, another tune to blast, another Instagram post to like, another restaurant to try, another game to play, another text to send, and on and on it goes. It's nauseating. And we're obsessed with busying ourselves because we fear what would happen if we stop. And we would have to face the music, the harrowing truth that we're just as stuck in a loop as the world. And that's too disturbing to stomach, right? So what do we usually do? We fill our vapor lives with vapor things. We insulate and numb ourselves with a packed schedule, events, entertainment, anything that would distract us from that reality. Ignorance is bliss, but the preacher is removing the blinders. He says in verse nine, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Peel off the surface and everything underneath is essentially the same. I mean, we're on iPhone, what, uh, 15, 16, 15. I don't even know. You know, there's been that many versions of the iPhone, but are they really all that different? Sure, an upgrade here, an upgrade there, but it's still, at the heart of it, a tool for communication. It's not entirely novel. Decades ago, every house had a landline. Even before the invention of the telephone, people could communicate through postal service. Solomon wrote letters. Sure, it wasn't as fast, but communication is as old as time. And it's the same in every field. No painting, whether modern or ancient, introduces a new color to us. No musical piece, whether catchy, brilliant, or just for fun, contains a note, a key that's never been played. And look at fashion today. Uh, from what I understand, it's cool to go thrift shopping, to find vintage clothes. How's that for the circle of life? 
or you visit a dumpster, someone used to be excited by that junk. You've seen one baby, you've seen them all. They're all pretty much coming out looking like little aliens anyways. And I'm a parent, so I'm allowed to say those things. But speaking of aliens, even if we could say fictitiously, go to Mars, who knows, maybe it will happen. We could go to Mars and colonize that planet. You know what we would discover? And this might offend SpaceX nerds here, but it's okay. As awesome as space travel may be, it will not remove the limitations we have as mere mortals. You're still a human on a planet, just like here on Earth. Look, the preacher isn't denying advancements, progress. He's not saying there's no new gadgets or gizmos. He's saying nothing, nothing we create or seek after can break us out of this cycle and change the vapor-like quality of our lives. One last argument to rest this case, verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I mean, simple experiment. How many of you remember your grandpa's middle name or where your grandma went for college? Maybe a handful of you, that's admirable. But you back it up one more generation, two if you want to be safe, and I would wager none of us would even know our great-great-grandparents' names. And these are people who are instrumental in bringing you into the world and the kind of upbringing you had. What's happened in the past will happen in the future. And our memory of others fades, and so will we in the memory of others. For 99.9% of us, no one will remember our names in just 100 years. That's all it takes to essentially, effectively erase our existence from the face of the planet. Now, I'm kind of slowly confronted with this phenomenon every Monday I show up to church basketball. I know, I know it's shocking because um, you think that the most athletic thing a, a pastor can do is read books, but I do play sports from time to time. I used to play basketball a lot more when I was younger. These days, I'm just okay, I'm decent. Uh, people remind me of this after they see me play with their pseudo compliment, you know, like, oh, Pastor Allen, you're pretty good for your age, right? <laughs> it's like, wow, what, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say it, right? It hurts my soul. But I get it because I acknowledge that I am way past my prime. That even if I was to try to persuade people, dude, back in the day, I was like Asian Kobe, I could just dominate. No one would believe me. And furthermore, no one would even care. Those glorious memories I have are in my own head and they will die with me. And that's the end, all right? We've reached the end of this message, so let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. But what are we to do with such a bleak ending? With such a troubling passage of scripture like this? It's depressing, it's disturbing. It's so abnormal from what we normally read in the scriptures. Are we just supposed to speed through, sidestep the entire issue? You know, go to our 
pat Christian answers, our Sunday school Bible bullet, like Jesus, it's Jesus. He provides the meaning. And that's true. We might eventually get there. In Ecclesiastes 12, the preacher will charge us to remember our creator. But it takes 11 chapters to finally arrive. You see, the journey is part of the process and we can't take shortcuts. Desperation cultivates appreciation. So I am okay with just stewing in this bleak portion of the Bible because we need to be shaken up by the vanity of life. Not to ultimately leave us hopeless, but to humble us. Ecclesiastes needs to hurt you before it can help you. It's only when we accept our mortality, our limitations as finite beings and the uh, inevitability of our death that we can embrace life as a gift. You know, returning to my basketball illustration, it would be absolutely annoying if you were playing with me and I was intent on always trying to dunk the basketball whenever you pass it to me. Why? Because I can't, right? I just can't jump that high. And if I keep trying, it is an exercise in futility. It'd make for a miserable experience and I would be a detriment to the team. Not only do I need to play within the confines of the game, I need to play within the confines of my God-given abilities. And so these days before the buzzer sounds, I pass the ball. I maybe shoot a jumper or go for a layup from time to time. And it makes the game fun, enjoyable for me as well as the people around. You see, the best players aren't just those with crazy skills or raw talent. The best players are those who recognize their strengths and their weaknesses and for 48 minutes play within their game. This is what the preacher is trying to hammer home. It doesn't help to be oblivious or beat around the bush. Life is elusive. It's a mystery. It's puzzling. It won't always make sense and it won't last forever. And instead of trying to figure it all out or avoid the inescapable, the sooner we accept our limitations, our strengths and weaknesses, the sooner we can enjoy life. Then we won't have these unrealistic expectations. We won't be duped into thinking marriage, family, career, pleasure, vacations, and possessions can ultimately quench the deepest longings of our soul because they were never supposed to. As the inimitable C.S. Lewis noted, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only possible explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. You see, the questions we wrestle with, the gifts we receive in this vain life, are designed to lead us to the same place, to the giver, to God himself. And when we get God, then everything else 
falls into place. Lewis again writes elsewhere, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. So take in the sunset, feast on good food, share a hearty laugh with friends. Just recognize they can never sustain your soul. Only God can. Life is a vapor, but that doesn't mean we can't enjoy the short ride. We just have to accept it's going to end. And the preacher starts with this monumental truth because this is where life starts. You've probably picked up on something rather unusual about Ecclesiastes. There seems to be very little about faith, forgiveness, salvation, and other churchy words, but it's intentional. You see, you're a creature before you're a Christian. You're a creature longer than you are a Christian. And every human being experiences life under the sun. This key phrase, what we're titling our series, that the preacher will repeat throughout this book. Life under the sun is the preacher's favorite way for referring to life as we know it. Life now, here, in this broken world. Life between the two paradises of Eden and heaven. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. This is a shared experience across the board. But the vanity of life under the sun is meant to get you thinking outside of the box, to project you to the one who exists above the sun. As one author put it, Ecclesiastes is about living backwards. That your impending death would impact, influence, and enforce, uh, inform how you live your life that the mysteries we encounter would guide us to the divine. You see, when life is spinning out of control, that's when we go looking for the one who is in control. When we can't make sense of what's going on, we turn to trust in the one who does. And God will provide the answers. He doesn't provide all of them, and that's deliberate as well, to teach us. He's the creator. We're the creatures. He is God and we are not. But he's certainly given us enough. His son, Jesus Christ, who makes all things new. As we know from the rest of scripture, Jesus Christ steps into our fleeting, futile world to bear our sin, to lift our curse, to usher in a new day, one that will have no end and where satisfaction abounds. But until then, the first step is accepting our humanity and all that comes with it. That's the first step towards receiving grace and recovering Eden. Let's pray. God, what a sobering passage. But because it removes and dims all the panache and flashiness of our lives and the things that we pursue to show us who we are at the bottom, that we are creatures, that we are people who are chasing for meaning, searching for truth, 
And then sadly, a lot of times we look for it in the wrong places. We can spend ourselves and waste our lives toiling away to gain nothing in the end. But Lord, the vanity, the insanity and absurdity of this life is a stepping stone. It's meant to catapult us to you, to prime our hearts that we may see that we were made for eternity, to know you and to live for you. And so Lord, use your word as hard as it may be to receive, uh, to whittle us down that you might build us up, that we would treasure Christ and find much joy in him, and then to enjoy all the gifts and surprises of life, the struggles as well as you have intended, that we may cling to you. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would continue to use it to transform us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.